You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, everyone. So glad you guys are here today. If I've not met you before, if you're new here, my name is Nick. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, It's been a while since I've been in the pulpit. They say one of the, uh, I guess, temptations, if you haven't been in the pulpit for a while, is that you share everything that you've been thinking about for so long. So it's been like six weeks. So if there's six weeks of sermon in here, it's cool. Just strap up. It'll be fun. We'll go through it together. Uh, I say it all the time, uh, but I'm going to continue to say it. This is not just um, information dump, okay? The sermon is as much a part of the worship service as the rest of it, okay? So feel free to to talk back to me, to say amen. If you have to say ouch, say ouch, that's fine. But this is dialogical, okay? We're in this together. I don't want to just sit and dump information on you, okay? Good? Yeah? Amen? All right, sweet. So if you are new here, if you haven't been with us, we are journeying through the book of Matthew. Uh, Just recently, we started in Matthew 13, Um, so we're kind of walking through that. Um, If you remember last week, Pastor James, he talked about the beheading of John. Thankfully, I didn't have to preach that text, Um, but in that sermon, he talked about how Matthew 13, which is uh, the common parable of sowers, a couple weeks ago, it actually gives evidence or shows lived out parables. So Matthew 13 is kind of this allegorical story that Jesus tells. And then Matthew, the writer, from there gives us real life examples of what that looks like. If we're going to drill down deep over the last few chapters and, and think about the actual problem at the root of the unbelief in all these enacted parables, if you will, the problem in Nazareth when they rejected Jesus was rationalism. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his family? Like, he's, he's just crazy. He's not thinking rationally. The problem in the palace that we looked at last week was sensualism. Herod rejected Jesus' teaching from John the Baptist on marriage and sexuality. And that rejection actually led him to murdering Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And the problem we're going to see today in the wilderness is, is realism or, or maybe pragmatism. The disciples are looking at the situation. They're saying, how can you do this, Jesus? Logistically speaking, this is not going to work. Now, it's important to note the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a lot of stuff the Gospel writers could have written about, but all four of them picked this miracle to include. So it obviously had tremendous impact on them, And it should have tremendous impact on us. The challenge, though, is that it's familiar to us, to many. The reality is familiarity can be a hindrance to understanding. Or maybe on a different level, familiarity can be a hindrance to intimacy. Because it's familiar, I want to urge you this morning to see Jesus in a new way. So before I start, I want to pray for us to that end, that we would see Jesus anew this morning in a fresh way. So let's pray. Jesus, we do come before you, many of us having heard probably a thousand sermons on this, 
But we ask, Jesus, that as we look at who you are, at the things you reveal about yourself in this story, in this miraculous yet ordinary feeding, that you would give us fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear, that we would experience you in a new way. We know, Spirit, this is only possible through your work, so we ask, Spirit, that you would um, soften our hearts this morning, that we can hear this text anew. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you open up your bulletins, there's an outline in there that, that you can follow along. I encourage you, if you have a physical Bible, to grab it, to open it to this passage, even though the text is in the bulletin. This, this is your book. The Bible is your book. It's not just me and James' book, right? It's your book, and um, we, we want you to continue to engage with it, to see that you can interact with it. It's, it's your book. So the first thing we see in the story is we see overwhelming crowds and a loving king. In verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard about it, or this, the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place. Now, it's hard to say exactly, precisely why Jesus withdrew, but I think there's probably two likely scenarios, if not both together. One is Jesus is grieving the tragic death of his cousin. The other is that Jesus simply needed to be away with God. To spend time exercising the the spiritual practice that's often called silence and solitude. Jesus was getting away to be with God and getting away to deal with his grief. He wasn't afraid to deal with the pain of the emotions of loss, and he certainly wasn't afraid to take those emotions of loss to his heavenly Father. See, all, all of Jesus' ministry was rooted in his identity as Son of God. He spent time being with God so that he could do things with and for God. His identity preceded his function. Most of us have that tragically reversed, but we'll talk more about that later. Now, in this specific example, Jesus' intention actually doesn't come to fruition, right? He he gets interrupted. It says in verse 13, still, when the crowds heard where Jesus was going, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus has this little crew of groupies going, right? These are the deadheads, the believers, the bayhive, or the best play on words, the Fanalos, who follow Barry Manilow around, right? So avid fans are strategic. They know, they know somehow where to go to see the musician or whatever act they're following. These people are strategic. They say, oh, Jesus is on sea. He's going across the water, but we can hedge him off around. So they do that. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he said, again, can't some guy get some alone time around here? He didn't say that. Look at verse 14. He said, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus was interrupted. What he wanted to do was stopped, and yet he had compassion on them. How a person responds to interruption usually reveals a lot about who they are. Why? Because you have no time to fake it. You have no time to calculate, to plan how you're going to respond, to think through like, oh, I probably shouldn't blow up in this situation, right? The realest you often comes out in interruptions, and look at what comes out of Jesus. His immediate and instinctive response is compassion from deep within his being. 
Contrary to Herod, who we saw last week, who's moved by, who was moved by sensuality, Jesus is moved by compassion. Now, we, this is important to see because Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is a better king. One who rules in a completely different way than the kings of their days and the small k kings of ours. His leadership style is one that's dictated by love and compassion. The story continues in verse 15 through 18. We see overwhelming need and underwhelming resources. So the crowds are are gathering around, getting all healed up and taught up by Jesus. And then verse 15, it tells us when evening came, the disciples approached him. So the disciples come to him and they kind of seem to have like the end of the workday grumpies going, right? They're a lot shorter with him. You'll notice they don't use the respectful title of Lord to him. So rather they just come and they're just giving them the facts. They said, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So the disciples right now, this is kind of like when you're on a road trip, you know, you're driving. It's like 4.30. You start to get a little rumbly in the tumbly. You're trying to assess. You say, okay, 15 minutes. I know there's a Chick-fil-A or whatever, Subway, whatever you like. It's 15 minutes away. But then you're like, I don't know if I want to eat at 4.45. If you don't go there, you're gambling. It's like between here and Cincinnati, what's, what's next? I don't know. The consequences of that decision are exacerbated if you have kids in the back, right? Because then you have to think about like where they're at, you know. Then if you take the risk, you go a little too far. The kids are screaming in the back. You're hungry. You have to stop at like a Perkins attached to a Love's, and that's just not good for anybody. But that's where they are, right? They're assessing the situation. They're like, we're hungry. They're hungry. There's also like 10,000 of them. Where are they going to go? There's not enough gas station taquitos to fuel these people, Jesus. We need to get them out of here now. They realize they're, they're off the beaten path. The logistics just aren't adding up, right? They're being extremely pragmatic. Even in their shortness and in their pragmatism and their unbelief, Jesus, he's, he's patient with them. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, hey, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now we're really ramping up the need, right? They're like, we're just going to send everyone away. Dinner was on your own. We already talked about this, Jesus. Everyone's going Dutch here, okay? We're not paying for their food. But Jesus says, no, you need to do this. They say, well, Jesus, we, verse 17, we only have five loaves and two fish. Again, they're assessing the situation, and it's just not adding up. The need is greater than the resources they have. But Jesus compassionately, even on his disciples, he says, bring them here to me. He says, just just bring me what you have. Offer up your natural resources and let me do a supernatural work. It's here in verse 19 that, that we see Jesus respond with a miracle. We see an overwhelming supply and a providing shepherd. It says, then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. It's, It's really the most ordinary of miracles. We're given no details on how Jesus does this, what it looked like. We don't know that, but somehow 
He took the little bit they had and he made much of it. In verse 20, we know it says everyone ate and was satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. Jesus in his grace and his provision as the good shepherd, he has compassion on the crowds, even though they don't totally appreciate him for who he is or what he does. But nonetheless, he he provides for them. He gives them what they need, whether or not they realize they need it. But what's beautiful is he doesn't stop there, right? He gives them leftovers. He says they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now, Jesus, isn't, he's not being careless. He's not like trying to live in opulence like King Herod. This is just a purposeful way for him to remind us that he doesn't just take care of your immediate needs, but he is also thinking about the future on your behalf. Just as we pray, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He shows that he'll answer that prayer and more. So in this familiar account of a very ordinary miracle, there are three things that I think Jesus might be inviting you to. If not all three, at least one of them. The first is is that Jesus models silence and solitude for you. If you remember back in the beginning, this this whole miraculous story, it begins with Jesus actually getting away or trying to. He's grieving. He's exhausted from ministry. And what does he do? He goes to a quiet place to be alone with his father. He practices silence and solitude. It's a spiritual discipline or, or practice of Jesus. And simply put, a silence and solitude, if you've never heard about this, it's intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. And we see that this isn't just a one-time thing for Jesus. This is a lifestyle. This is a rhythm of his life. This is something he does all the time. We see in Luke 5, 15, the news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. Crowds gathered around Jesus everywhere he went. He was busy. He had some stuff going on as as the Messiah. Yet in the face of a full schedule, look at Luke 5, 16. Right after that, it says, Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. In, In Luke's gospel, you can actually see a direct correlation. As ministry ramps up, Jesus gets away more and more. Not because he's shirking responsibilities or he's trying to avoid pain and problems, but he realizes he can't meet this need in his own strength. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he's often quoted, whether or not it's true, I don't know, but it's a good quote, so we'll run with it. You can Google it later. It says, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. If we're real with ourselves, for us, it's the exact opposite. I don't know if you guys are like me. My job, actually, I'm supposed to do word and prayer, apparently, according to Scripture. But as I get busier, it's weird how that, that prayer stuff starts to shrink down. Not, not even just, I'm not just putting you on blast about prayer, just being alone with God. It's a little leaner and leaner the busier I get. Oftentimes for us, when we get overly busy, the quiet place isn't the first place we go, but rather the first thing that goes. When we feel pinched for time, we, we cut the thing to us that feels It's not, but it feels least productive. Even if I tell you, hey, go spend 
30 minutes in silence and solitude, you, you, you probably ask, well, what do I do? Is that productive? I know you, I know you work. Maybe you're a mom. You got the side hustle rolling, the Etsy page. Not to mention church, community group, soccer practice for the kids. But I think it's safe to say if the perfect embodiment of humanity, Jesus Christ, the God-man, if he needed time in the quiet place, I think we probably do too. If the Messiah, you know, the one responsible for saving all humanity from Satan's sin and death, the one who was preaching cool sermons, healing people, running successful picnics for 10K, we can probably find some time too. Jesus made silence and solitude a regular rhythm of life because he saw it. He saw time devoted to listening, just listening to God as an essential part of his faith. One of the realities is that uh, intimacy is built through time spent together. Intimacy is built through time spent together. That's any relationship. Spouse, roommate, friend, family member. Intimacy is built through time spent together. So even Jesus, who was God, needed to spend time with God the Father alone, just the two of them. The silence and solitude, it was a vital part of his ministry. Again, his identity preceded his function. His doing for God was always fueled by his being with God. Now, I've been reading um, this book with a, a friend here at Carlisle called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Oh, yeah. It's by a pastor named John Mark Comer. Um, John Mark Comer, over the last year, has probably been one of the more influential voices in my life with regards to spiritual formation. Um, and so I, I can't recommend his work enough, and specifically this book. But his basic thesis, if you boil it down, is it, it comes from Dallas Willard, who was um, just a, a guru on spiritual formation. Uh, it's this idea that Western Christians, they're, they're too busy to experience meaningful growth. And this is what Pastor Comer says. He says, both sin and busyness had the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your soul. Intimacy is built through time spent together. Louisville's local contemplative Thomas Merton, he goes so far as to say that hurry or busyness is a form of violence on the soul. Theologian Ronald Rollheiser, he piles on, and mind you, this is a quote from 99, so you'll see it's dated, and we have way different and probably even scarier temptations now. It says, it's not that we have anything against God, depth, or spirituality. We would like these things. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, or Amazon, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Did you know that the average phone user spends two and a half hours on their phone a day? The number is actually twice that for millennials. It's five hours. 
We're ruining everything, millennials, gosh. At that rate, it's hard to see in like daily hours, right? How many days do you think that is a year? 76, right? Yeah, if you need a second to breathe, go for it. The average, um, average American spends 705 hours a year on social media. That's 30 days a year on social media. One month, if you like to think in bigger chunks. The average American watches 2,738 hours of TV. That's 114 days of TV a year. One-third of your year spent on TV. Look, right now we're in a cultural moment where we feel, emphasis on feel, busier than ever. Yet we're also in a cultural moment that squanders more time than ever. And listen, I, I really, I don't say this to put anyone on blast. I'm not trying to condemn you. Like, this is honestly a journey that I'm working through right now. Like, just to put myself on, on blast, my screen time for last week, two hours and 15 minutes a day, which is 34 days a year. I think we need to start talking about this. In our lives, we need to make space for this practice that Jesus models for us. And it's not, it's not for our lack of time that we can't get it done. Some Christian counselors I know, they say silence and solitude are the containers, the very things that hold all the other spiritual disciplines. If you can't, if you can't make space to be alone with God, it's really hard to practice any meaningful spiritual disciplines on your own, especially in this frenetic, fast-paced Western lifestyle. I think that as we practice silence and solitude, as we make space to be alone with ourselves and God, we can find ourselves actually becoming more Christ-like, right? If Jesus practiced this, if he did this, and then we do that, doesn't that mean we're becoming more Christ-like, we're becoming more like him if we do the things that he did. You're right. It does, nowhere in scripture is it commanded. Thou shalt have silence and solitude. It's not. But if Jesus is doing it, it's probably a good rhythm of life. Maybe that's resurrecting the old 90s quiet time. If you, if you do that, good on you. Maybe it's taking a weekly walk in the woods or sitting on your front porch every morning with nothing but coffee and a journal. But in all these, no phone, no AirPods, no music, no TV. Even this is awkward, right? The silence, ah, we hate it. But that says more about us than it does about anything else. I wish I had more time. I, I could preach a whole sermon. Maybe you're like, you just did, keep it moving. But if God is inviting you to press into this more, here, I want to put some resources on the screen for you. First, just a general spiritual discipline website. These are both by uh, Pastor Comer. Again, I can't recommend his work enough. It's practicingtheway.org. If, you wanna, if you're interested more in silence and solitude, there's the, the link for that as well. I think we have to start thinking about the way we spend our time and then also how much time we're spending alone with God. Again, for Jesus, this was a must. He did this before any miracle, right? He got along with God first to re remind himself of his identity. 
before he got after hard work. Now, same time, that's not where it stops, right? The desert monks, they had great spiritual practices, but they weren't doing a whole lot for their neighbor because they didn't have any neighbors. So the second thing we see is that Jesus invites you to do the work of ministry. In verse 16, if you look there with me, after the disciples tell Jesus to send the crowds away, he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, we don't want to miss in the original language here, they didn't have like, you know, command B, command I, bold, italicized things. They had specific words to give emphasis. So in this verse right here, that you is, called what, is what's called an emphatic you. It's italicized. He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The problem that we see in the Western church is that it's kind of become sort of a spectator sport for many. It's more of just a weekly event that, that you go to and attend, you know, you pay your, your, uh, your ticket price to get in the door. But that's not what it's about. The feeding of the 5,000 shows that Jesus practiced what he preaches too, right? Look at what, this is Paul, what Paul says about Jesus' ministry model. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, it says, And Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So the goal of these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The Western church has missed this and has turned the church into a sporting event. We pay our tithe to get in the game, and then we watch the pastors and church staff do cool stuff. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what he invites the church to, Big C Church. Jesus shows us that what all church ministry philosophies should be. It says, you see the need, like the disciples, they're like, Jesus, these peeps are hungry. You see the need, you take what you have, take it to Jesus and let him do a supernatural work. God wants you to get your hands dirty. He wants you to respond to the need that you see right in front of you. He wants you to take your, your, your humble, natural means and then offer, him, offer them up to him and let him do a supernatural work. Dale Ralph uh, Bruner, he's got a great commentary on Matthew. He says, Jesus does not create new food, but takes what the disciples had. While the miracle is supernatural, the means Jesus uses are natural. I love that. He doesn't create new food, right? As God of the universe, he, he could have just like taken none of the stuff they had and said, well, let me, let me just bring in my team of, of cooks and sous chefs and we'll put a, a good meal together. He doesn't do that. He takes the humble means that the disciples had. And I think that's so important for us. Again, this is not condemning you. I am wrestling with this right now. As I think about our church, I think things like if we had more staffing, then think of all the stuff we could do. Man, if we just have more money, 
Then we could do some good ministry around here. I know others still, it's if we had this amazing new outreach program, then we could do outreach. Or if we had a youth ministry, then we could do youth ministry. God God says you can and you should do the work of the ministry right now. We don't need a program to do ministry. We're all ministers together. If we want to see the gospel advance in South Louisville and South Louisville and beyond, the answer is not more programs. It's, it's people. It's us doing the work of the ministry. If you're waiting for these things, for programs, for outreach, whatever, whatever you, you want, Jesus is telling you, don't wait around. Go and do it. If you have a heart for youth in marginalized communities, go, go do the ministry. Don't let me and James or Christina get in your way. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad or useless, okay? Don't hear that. What I am saying is that if you're waiting for a program of some kind to start, or you're waiting, like me, you're waiting for more staff or, or, or more finances, then, then we're missing the point. We're, put, we're putting our hope in more natural means and not our supernatural God. Dale Bruner, one more time, he says, to help a needy world, Jesus uses what the church has in its hands and gives to him to multiply for the service of the world. If like the disciples, you feel the need around you is overwhelming, don't try to will it to happen in your own strength. Don't try to blame the church for the lack of programs or the lack of planning. Jesus is inviting you to come forward with what you have, with your very natural skills and means, and you do the work of the ministry. He says, you feed them. Just bring me what you have, and I'll do the rest. Lastly, the the thing that I think Jesus is inviting all of us to is to remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, loves and provides for you. Now, in our specific passage, it's a little less evident, but if you look at other accounts of this miracle, this idea of Jesus as shepherd is highlighted like crazy. Like Mark, it's like sirens are going off. It's like, this is the guy. This is the shepherd that was talked about in Psalm 23. I think we have it on the screen. I just want to highlight some of these. And you can see all these in our text, but Mark is trying to point. He's saying, this is the guy. So to say that a person in their day was the person the Psalms is talking about is highly um, confrontational, and it's saying a lot. So first in Mark 6, 34, it says they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? You can't not hear Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. 6, 42, they all ate and were satisfied. In Psalm Psalm 23, 1, I lack nothing. This is where a lot of people see the connection. In Mark 6, 39, Jesus told them, uh, the disciples, to have them sit down in groups on the green grass. 23, 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And then jumping down to the bottom, Mark 6, 34, he, he taught them many things. We miss that in this text, but he was teaching them. Even in Matthew, we see that. It reminds us in Psalm 23, 3, that, that the, the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the Lord, He guides us along the right paths. 
Now, again, familiarity is a barrier to intimacy, right? So we read that and we're like, yeah, the Lord's my shepherd, I know. But I want you to sit in that for a second. Hear that. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is your shepherd. He loves you and he cares for you. He provides for you. So much so that when you have needs, whether or not you realize them, he is moved deep within his gut. He has compassion on you. Jesus, he's not like the CEO of your company, right, who has no idea what the day-to-day life of, of being a human is, right? He did an undercover boss before it was cool. He left his riches in heaven to slum it up in the muck with you. He's got mud on his sandals and the hems of his robe. He probably smells like sheep and manure. He's got dirt under his nails. He's a God that gets dirty for you. He's not like some Greek mythological God that is above humanity. Jesus is our good shepherd. Now, in the ancient Near East, there was this euphemism that they used to to test the gods. It was like a diagnostic test, you know, like... I'm not going to talk about personality tests, but it's like your, your Enneagram, right? Your God's Enneagram. It's like, did they do this? Then they're this, right? Psalm 78 says, they deliberately tested God, demanding the food they craved. And here's the, the euphemism or the challenge, if you will. They spoke against God saying, is God, is your God able to provide food in the wilderness? Oh, you say your God's the best? Well, can he feed you in the desolate places? Can he take care of you in the most basic daily provisions when it looks like it's not possible? And Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 answers that question with a resounding yes. Don't you feel that from the feeding? They're in a desolate place. The disciples, they have their backs against the wall. They're like, we can't give these guys enough food. It's answering the question, can your Jesus, can your God provide for you in the wilderness? We need to remember as Christians that Jesus cares for our whole being. He doesn't just take care of the spiritual stuff and leave you to fend for the rest. If you only see Jesus as as somebody that's like, you know, deals with your spiritual stuff, but then day to day he doesn't care, you're, you're denigrating his power, to be frank. Jesus doesn't just do big, giant miracles. He does small miracles, too. Ordinary miracles, like feeding people in need. We need to remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, he loves and provides for us in every possible way. He's faithful. He's kind. As we can see, it juxtaposed to the last um, text. he's, He's a good king. He's different than Herod. He's different than other kings because he's moved and motivated by love and compassion. Now, one of the things that comes up in this passage that, I mean, really, you just can't not hear um, is how much the feeding of the 5,000 mimics, if you will, the practice that we practice every Sunday called communion. Um, another, Another quote from Bruner, He says, Matthew's conviction, shared historically by both Catholic and Reformation churches, is that the Lord's Supper, rightly observed, is relevant to the world in need. Like the five loaves and two fish, it seems irrelevant 
but in the Lord's hands, it becomes even socially miraculous. So every week when we gather together, we do practice this meal called communion. And oftentimes, just, I mean, because of our tribe, our camp, we, we forget that this meal that we take together is a powerful witness to the watching world. That there's something about these ordinary means that Jesus gives us that speak in a supernatural way to people around us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, again, hear this, in the feeding of the 5,000, he took bread, he gave thanks for it, he blessed it, and then he broke it. Then he said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. On that same night when he was betrayed, he took a cup of wine, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. He said, as often, hear this, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you're announcing Christ's death until he returns. This isn't just some like random rote symbol that we do for the heck of it. This is announced, when you take this meal, you're announcing Christ's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There will be stations up here to the front. There's gluten-free over to my left and your right. There will be instructions on the screen on, on which direction to go, um, just so things don't get muddied. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we ask that you would not uh, partake in this meal, not because we're trying to exclude you, but this meal is, about, or is for those who are about the reality of Christ, who have said, yeah, Jesus is my, my Lord and my shepherd. I know he loves me and sacrificed himself for me. If you're not there yet, we, we would love to talk to you about what that means about what it, what it means to submit your life to King Jesus, to live under his rule and reign. You can talk to, to me or Pastor James or, or one of the leaders after the service. In a second, I'm going to pray for us. And then I just want to invite you to consider these things that we saw in the text today. Consider what God is inviting you to and consider the power of this meal, how it, how it um, just mirrors the feeding of the 5,000. Again, it's, it's ordinary means that make a supernatural impact. So I want you to meditate on that as you take the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.